Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Amara, and this is Black Girl Gone, a true crime podcast. On this episode of Black Girl Gone, we share the story of Nikki McCown from Richmond, Indiana, who went missing on July 22, 2001. Nikki McCown vanished three weeks before her wedding after a routine day of doing laundry. 20 years later, life has moved on, but Nikki's family has not. They still do not know what happened to Nikki. This is Nikki's story. This week's episode was a request. I received an email from the sister of Nikki McCown asking me to cover Nikki's story. Now, I was familiar with Nikki's story. I'd remember it from the episode of Disappeared. And if you're a true crime nerd like me, you too have probably heard of Nikki's story. Nikki has been missing for almost 20 years, and her case has really faded from the headlines. So I was honored that her sister asked me to cover her story. I hope that any attention, even small, could bring answers to Nikki's family. In July 2001, 28-year-old Nikki McCown is just weeks away from one of the best days of her life, her wedding day. Nikki and her fiancé, Bobby, are doing all the final details for their big day. You know, fittings and finalizing other things. You know, all the things that go into planning a wedding. Which, for those of us who have done it, know how much goes into planning a wedding. Nikki and Bobby had met in high school where they dated. But after high school, the two broke up and went their separate ways. Bobby later recalled that they never forgot about each other and that when they reconnected a few years later, it was like they almost immediately started dating again. Bobby had apparently moved to California for a few years, but when he got back, him and Nikki rekindled their high school romance. But this time, they were having an adult relationship, and the two were engaged really not long after they started dating again. Nikki's life, however, had changed a lot since her and Bobby were dating in high school. Nikki was a mom now. She had a little girl named Peyton. So Bobby was going to be a stepdad, too. He was really getting, like, almost an instant family. In 2018, Nikki was working as an accountant for a correctional facility where she had worked her way up from being a prison guard. But Nikki really had bigger dreams. She was enrolled at the local community college, Sinclair Community College. Um, She wanted to be either a U.S. Marshal or an FBI agent, so she was majoring in criminal justice. And at 28 years old, everything seemed to be really falling into place for Nikki. Sunday, July 22, 2001, was a normal day for Nikki. She went to church with Bobby, and afterwards, her and Bobby both needed to run some errands because, of course, their wedding day is coming up, and they're doing all of this prep work. So Nikki decided that she was going to go to Dayton, Ohio, which is about a 15-minute drive from Richmond, Indiana, to go to a beauty supply store. Now, this may seem like a far drive to go to a beauty supply store, but, you know, Black women, we really don't play about our hair. You know, we'll drive literally to the end of the earth to go to a hair store if we need to. So her, you know, driving 50 minutes to go to a hair store is really not, you know, that, you know, far of a stretch. Plus, 
we have to remember that her job was in Dayton, Ohio as well. So this is some place that she was familiar with, that she went all the time. And so it wasn't like this, you know, off the wall or off the beaten path kind of place to go. This is something that she did all the time and a place that she was familiar with. Now, the trip to Ohio, you know, kind of ironically, is not mentioned in the episode of Disappeared that her family does. But it is later mentioned in an episode, um, in an interview that they do with Crime Watch Daily. And so that's where the information about her going to or having plans to go to Dayton um, to go to a hair store comes from. So Bobby's Bobby, Nikki's fiance, was meeting his best man that day to get fitted for his tuxedo. So that was his plan. Nikki was going to go do her thing, and Bobby's plan was to go get fitted for his tuxedo with his best man. Uh, Nikki drops off Peyton at her mom's house before going to run her errands. Um, but apparently doing laundry, according to Nikki's sister Tammy, was something that Nikki did every Sunday. So the laundry wasn't really a part of any like wedding prep or anything like that. This was just really a part of Nikki's normal Sunday routine. She would drop Peyton off at her mom's house. She would go do laundry, you know, and that was just what she did on Sundays. And Nikki's sister, Tammy, also said that the laundromat was down the street from her house, from Tammy's house. And so Nikki would often come, you know, to Tammy's house while she was waiting for her laundry to be done. And Tammy described it as being really her and Nikki's bonding time. However, on that Sunday, Nikki decided to go to her parents' house because her normal Sunday trip to the laundromat was anything but that. On that Sunday, when Nikki goes over to her parents' house, she tells her family that two men had been harassing her at the laundromat. Now, it's not clear in what way they were harassing her, but Nikki said they wouldn't leave her alone. Now, in the episode of Disappear, Nikki's mom said that she told Nikki that if she was worried about the men at the laundromat, that she could just finish the laundry at her house. So, apparently, Nikki tells her family that she's going to go get her laundry and she'll be right back. But Nikki never returns to her parents' home. In 2001, you have to remember, everyone doesn't have a cell phone like we do now. However, Nikki apparently did. But it's not clear if they tried to call her when she didn't come right back. But I believe that Nikki's family assumed that when she didn't come right back, that she probably was just finishing her laundry and that she would be back later that afternoon. Now, Bobby, remember, was out getting fitted for his tuxedo. But when he returned home, Nikki was not there. Now, Bobby was unaware of the issue at the laundromat, and so he assumed that Nikki had decided to go shopping, which was something that she often did. But when 5.30 rolled around and Bobby realized that Nikki wasn't home, he really began to worry. Now, clearly, it was unusual that Nikki wasn't home by this time, You know, remember, Sunday trips to the laundromat were pretty routine. So the fact that it's almost 6 p.m. and she hasn't returned is causing some alarm. Bobby begins calling around asking if anyone has seen Nikki, but her family hasn't seen her or heard from her since she left to go get her laundry. And when Nikki doesn't come back to her parents' home to pick up Peyton, everyone is 100% sure that something is very, very wrong. Peyton's father uh, recalls in that Crime Watch Daily interview that Nikki's mom called him and asked him to come pick up Peyton, and then they told him that they couldn't find Nikki. 
So Peyton's dad comes and gets her from Nikki's mom so that the family could start to come up with a plan about how they were going to track down Nikki. They immediately started calling around to people that Nikki knew to see if they had heard from her, but nothing. No one had heard from or seen Nikki. At some point that night, they realized that Nikki had left her purse and her ID in the house. And Nikki's family is now in a full panic. Now, Nikki had gone to the laundromat, so how did her purse and ID get back home? Did she leave it there before she left? Or did she come back home at some point and then leave her purse and ID? So that's just a question that I have. I don't know, you know, how her purse and ID, I don't know if she had it. I mean, I would have assumed that she had it. She was going to go do laundry, so I would assume that she would have needed money. And, you know, she was driving, so she would have had her ID on her. So the fact that they find her purse and her ID in the house, to me, means that she might have come back to her house. But once they find the purse and the ID, they immediately go to the police to file a missing persons report. But the police tell them that they need to wait because they need to be, it needs to be 72 hours um, since she's been missing before they can file a report, which I'm sure is like really, really frustrating for her family because they know that Nikki is missing at this point. And they know that the pieces that they're putting together are leading them down a really, really dark path of possibilities. So the fact that the police is now telling them that they have to wait 72 hours before they can file a missing persons report, you know, I'm sure really must have been hard for them to wait those days. But when Monday, July 23rd comes and Nikki doesn't show up for work, her family knows that not only was she missing, but something bad happened to Nikki. Because there's no way that she would have not shown up for work. They knew there was no way in the world that Nikki would just pick up and leave everything and everyone behind. Nikki was a mom to a nine-year-old. She had a job that she loved. She was in school. And she was three weeks away from getting married to her high school sweetheart. So Nikki had absolutely no reason to just leave. Nikki was also super excited about her wedding day. She had spent a lot of time and a lot of money planning this day. This wedding meant everything to Nikki. So her having cold feet wasn't an option either. Nikki's family began searching for Nikki on their own. They started knocking on doors in Richmond and Dayton, where Nikki would often go, handing out missing person flyers with Nikki's picture. Once police learn that they have Nikki's ID and purse and she hasn't shown up for work, they start to wonder what happened to Nikki and whether or not she was safe. Police started to search around the area near the laundromat where Nikki was last seen. They start to look and see if they can find anybody, you know, who saw her and could tell them about what happened to her that day, what her day was like. Nikki's family tells the police about the incident at the laundromat that day and about the two men that Nikki said had been harassing her. But when police go to interview people at the laundromat that day, no one seems to remember or recall anyone harassing Nikki. Police do secure surveillance footage from the convenience store across from the laundromat that shows Nikki making a purchase and then leaving. Police described the video as really being normal. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary or concerning. Nikki's demeanor or actions on the tape seemed normal. And another surveillance camera captures Nikki leaving the laundromat and putting her laundry into the back of her car. Again, everything about Nikki seems normal. 
So initially, Bobby and Nikki's family are a united front on their search to find her. But Bobby starts being, for lack of a better word, weird. First, her sisters recalled to Crime Watch Daily that in the days and weeks following Nikki's disappearance, you know, they were all laser-focused on searching for Nikki. Tammy said that they didn't care how they look, you know, they would show up wearing anything because they were really in, like, you know, grind mode. They were looking for their sister, so it didn't matter how they looked or what they were wearing. Bobby, however, according to Tammy, was showing up to the search, like, camera-ready. She said that he looked like he really wanted to look good, you know, for when he was being interviewed. And so, you know, that was the first red flag that went up about Bobby for Nikki's sisters. Police would also notice that Bobby's behavior in the days and weeks after Nikki's disappearance was very suspicious. So police and Nikki's family learned that after Nikki disappeared, literally the day after she went missing, Bobby called the college where Nikki was attending classes asking for her tuition money by. Now, according to police, Bobby was irate during the call, yelling and screaming, like demanding her tuition money back. But the school, you know, tells Bobby that there is no tuition money because her job was paying for her to go to school. So Bobby also attempts to sell the wedding rings that Nikki had purchased for them. But apparently the jeweler or the store that he got them at would not take them back. And then he goes and cancels the wedding altogether. Now, this is all within a few days of Nikki being missing, right? So Bobby's suspicious behavior prompts the police to bring him in for a lie detector test, which he fails. Bobby, however, seems to really have an explanation for most of the suspicious behavior. Like, he has an explanation for why it looks the way he does. So. He claims that he only inquired about Nikki's tuition because he was concerned about, you know, her defaulting on her loan. Now, that explanation to me really doesn't make any sense. Because, like, first of all, you don't know that your fiance's tuition is being paid by her school. That kind of seems a little weird to me. Like, you think that she has a loan. You like you're so you're so invested in it at this point that you think that she has a loan that you don't know that she's that her school's paying for it. That doesn't seem like a legitimate reason. Also, like, has she been expressing to you that she might be defaulting on her loan? Because at this point, she's only been missing for a day. So unless she was like, you know, the day in the days before she was missing, like they're about to, you know, put this on my credit. I'm scared. I don't know why you would think that you should call her school and inquire about a loan for her, for school at this point. Um, and, you know, why are you concerned about loan payments for someone who's been missing less than 24 hours? Like, your fiance's missing. Even if she was about to default on her loan, that seems like that doesn't even, that wouldn't even be on that on your radar of things to worry about in that moment. Like, I can't find my fiance. She's been missing for more than 24 hours. Oh, I know. Let me call her school and make sure she doesn't default on her loan. That doesn't seem legit. But that's his reasoning, right? So. Then he says that he only tried to sell the rings because he needed money to purchase a cell phone. Now, he said in the days following Nikki's disappearance, you know, he was doing a lot of running around and that he needed a way to stay connected. Um, and this explanation I buy a little bit more than the first one because, 
you know, he really could have been strapped for cash. You know, he could have had the rings in his possession and he could have said, you know, I, I need to get some some quick cash and I have this. And so, you know, I can get this back when, you know, she comes back. But right now I need a phone that's more important. So that explanation is a little bit more reasonable than the first one. And, and that could have, you know, been legit. And so the other reason that he gives, the reason he gives for canceling the wedding is that he didn't cancel the wedding. He said that he actually never told anyone that he canceled the wedding. Um, But he admitted that with Nikki missing, having the wedding was really the last thing on his mind. And he said he did contact the hall, you know, to let them know that they might have to postpone the wedding because of the circumstances. But he says that that's it. He never canceled the wedding um, and that you know, reasonably so, having a big fancy wedding might not be the, you know, biggest thing on his mind at this moment. Um, But, you know, once again, this does really seem like odd behavior to, you know, be exhibiting in the, you know, very early moments of your fiance missing. Like, even to be worried about or thinking about these things like, you know, oh, I got to postpone the wedding. Oh, I have to, you know call the school and check her student loans. None of that really, really makes sense, but all of it could, you know, possibly, you know, have happened. Now, as for the lie detector test, Bobby says that the reason that he failed the lie detector test is because they asked him if he felt responsible for Nikki's death and that he did feel responsible for Nikki's death because that was his fiance. And he was, you know, his explanation was like, well, what man wouldn't feel responsible for something bad happening to their fiance? And he wasn't there, you know, to save her, help her. Um, But, you know, he says that's why he failed the test. Now, police say that that's not the question they asked him, that they asked him, was he responsible for her, you know, her disappearance? So, you know, since there's no, you know, actual tape of him being polygraphed and it's really his word against uh, the police at this point. We don't really know what the question was asked. But regardless of him failing the lie detector test, the police didn't really seem to think much of, you know, the, you know, behavior that he was exhibiting or the failed lie detector test because they don't name him a suspect. They do name him a person of interest, however, but you know, him being a person of interest just really meant that they knew that he knew a little bit more about the case than the average person, but they didn't necessarily think that he was involved. But regardless of the police not naming Bobby a suspect, his strange behavior causes her family to cut him completely off. Like, they completely stopped communicating with Bobby. And I don't think that the family was 100% sure that Bobby had something to do with Nikki being missing, But I think his behavior did not help him, you know, make them feel more comfortable about him in those, you know, days and weeks following her disappearance. And, you know, I'm sure at this point they were pretty much looking at anybody and everybody because they had no idea what happened to Nikki. After police decided not to name Bobby as a person of interest, the police are, you know, failing to find really any leads about Nikki and her disappearance. Nikki's family has really taken it upon themselves to find answers because at this time, they don't feel like the police is really doing enough to find her. They don't feel like the police are doing everything that they can. Um, and, you know, 
they decide to hit the streets themselves, her her sisters, her brothers, they start knocking on doors and they really start trying to seek answers and really doing their own investigation about what happened to Nikki. But four months after Nikki disappeared, the police got their first big break in the case. Now, in the parking lot of an apartment building in Dayton, Ohio, was the car Nikki was driving the day she went missing. Now, for Nikki's family, police finding the car reignited hope that they were going to find Nikki soon. You know, if they found the car that she was driving, then Nikki can't be too far away. Or perhaps something in the car would lead them to wherever she was. But what police find does not answer any questions. Frozen in time, in the back seat of the car, was the still-folded laundry that Nikki is seen placing in the car and that last-known surveillance footage of her. And that was all. There was no blood, no evidence. There was no proof that anything happened inside the car. No fingerprints, no hair fibers, nothing. But however, according to Crime Watch Daily, where the police find the car would later add more questions to the tragedy and mystery than there already was. The apartment complex where Nikki was found was apparently the apartment complex where her ex and father of Peyton lived. Stephen Johnson is immediately cooperative with police, and he willingly gives his DNA and takes a lie detector test. Stephen said he would have given it to them the next day because all they had to do was ask. Now, Stephen passes the lie detector test, and with no evidence, they rule Stephen out as a suspect. And police do believe that based on the position of the seat, that Nikki drove herself to Dayton. They believe to possibly meet someone. You know, Nikki apparently knew people in Dayton, but... Who was she meeting? No one knows knows anything about any plans for her to meet anybody in Dayton. You know, her plan was to go do her laundry. There was a plan for her to possibly go to the hair store in Dayton. But there was never any knowledge or any plan about her going to meet anybody in Dayton. Now, I assume that the police asked people that knew Nikki in Dayton had they spoken to Nikki. And I assume that they all said that they had it. However, interestingly enough, the police find out that Nikki's car is parked close to a co-worker of hers apartment complex as well. Now, this co-worker's name is Tommy Swint. Now, remember, the correctional facility where Nikki worked was in Dayton, so there were so many reasons for Nikki to be connected to the area. But finding Nikki's car close to Tommy Swint's apartment might be more than just coincidence. Tommy Swint was a co-worker of Nikki's. He was a correctional officer at the facility where Nikki worked. But Nikki and Tommy had a bit of a history that went beyond just being co-workers. Nikki and Tommy had worked together, and at first, it seemed like their relationship was just friendly. But Tommy actually wanted more than to just be Nikki's friend. And a relationship that started off as cordial quickly became an issue for Nikki. You see, Nikki was marrying her high school sweetheart, remember? She wasn't single, nor was she interested in dating Tommy. But Tommy didn't seem to get the message, and he became a borderline stalker. But it was more than just requests to take her out and flirting at work. During one of their encounters, Tommy gets violent with Nikki and tries to rape her. 
Now, this story is according to Nikki's sister from that episode of Disappeared. Her sister Michelle recalls that she showed up just in time to see Tommy on top of Nikki with his foot in her chest and her screaming, help, he's trying to rape me. Now, I don't believe that Nikki filed a police report about the incident, but that must have been really traumatic for her. Not only was this man being super aggressive about their relationship or lack thereof, he had actually become physically violent with her. So she has to come to work every day knowing that somewhere in the building is Tommy. And for me, that would have been absolutely terrifying, knowing that I'm coming to work every day and this man is, you know, in the same building or in a a building really close by and I'm having to come to work every day and deal with that. So that must have been really traumatic for Nikki. But Tommy was not only violent, he was obsessed. According to the Crime Watch Daily interview, her sister recalls how he sent her lingerie for her bridal shower. Now, that's like super creepy because not only do men not typically give women bridal shower gifts, if they do, it's definitely not something as intimate as lingerie when you're supposed to be just a platonic friend. I mean, in any way, you'd be a platonic friend because she's getting married, so it's her bridal shower. So there's no circumstance under which it would be appropriate for another man to be giving her lingerie for her bridal shower. So, you know, creep flags are going up all over the place. Now, police have now moved away from Bobby, the fiancé, and Stephen, Peyton's father, as possible suspects and, you know, people of interest in the case. And with all the new information about Tommy, he's quickly moving to the top of their list of possible suspects. They soon find out that Tommy has a violent streak. So that incident with Nikki was not an isolated incident. This is a pattern of behavior. Apparently, Tommy had been violent with a lot of women. It was the common thread amongst almost everyone that they spoke to about Tommy. He was violent with women. So the fact that Nikki's car was that close to Tommy's apartment and she was missing sent up huge red flags for investigators and Nikki's family who were convinced it was more than just a coincidence. But the cops really didn't have much evidence to lead them to Tommy. Remember, they hadn't found any physical evidence in the car that would link him to Nikki on that day, but the cops described Tommy as being less than cooperative. And they say he was acting strange when they spoke to him, which really doesn't surprise me because with all the creepy behavior that he was exhibiting, it's not, you know, far-fetched that he would act strange with the police when they're questioning him about Nikki's disappearance. But after that, the leads pretty much go cold. I mean, they do name Tommy as a person of interest and they keep moving forward with their investigation, but Tommy was a free man. A person of interest, but a free man. Six years went by, and there was very little information about her case or the investigation the police were doing. Nikki's family never stops looking for her, though. She left them stuck in the moment they last saw her, and her disappearance has really ruined their lives. In 2007, a tip to local police would reignite hope that Nikki's family might soon get some answers. The tip that comes into police was about Tommy Swint. The caller tells police that Tommy Swint is no longer a prison guard. He's now a cop. 
Despite being a person of interest in Nikki's disappearance and his history of violence with women, somehow he was able to be hired as a cop. Now, once police in Richmond find out that their only person of interest is now a cop in a neighboring town, they're shocked. They decide that they're going to go take a trip to the neighboring police department to speak to the chief of police. They wanted to know if Tommy had disclosed the fact that he was a person of interest in the Nikki McCown disappearance. And when Richmond detectives go to speak to the chief, surprise, surprise, Tommy failed to mention that he was a person of interest in the disappearance of his former coworker, an object of his stalking. And once the police department where Tommy Swint was working finds out that he did not tell them about his involvement in Nikki's case they gave him the option to resign or to be terminated. So Tommy decides to resign, but he also decides that he's going to sue the city of Richmond because he claims that they did not tell him that he was a person of interest. And that was his defense for not telling his police department. He said that he didn't know that he was a person of interest. Now, of course, Richmond police completely denied this allegation or adamant that they told Tommy Swint that he was a person of interest. But nobody is really buying Tommy's story, and his lawsuit gets dismissed. But his little stunt caused him to become headline news. And Tommy's face was all over the TV and local newspapers. And someone from Tommy's past recognizes him and called the police to give them a tip. But it wasn't about Nikki. It was about another young woman who was connected to Tommy and whose body was found discarded like trash in the woods 16 years before. That young woman's name was Tina Ivory. She was a 33-year-old woman who was living in Dayton, Ohio in 1991. Now, it's not exactly clear how Tommy Swint knew Tina Ivory, but it has been reported that Tina Ivory was a prostitute and a known drug user, and Tommy apparently paid for prostitutes quite frequently. But how or where he met Tina was really a mystery. When Tina's body is found in 1991, the police collected fingerprints and DNA from the body and belongings, but they did not have a suspect and therefore nothing to compare the evidence to. But after 16 years, the tip that police received would lead them right to Tina Ivory's alleged killer, Tommy Swint. Tommy Swint had given his DNA to Richmond police during their investigation into Nikki's disappearance. And when Richmond Police Department gives it to the local PD handling Tina Ivory's case for analysis, it came back a match. When Tina Ivory's case was reopened, police were able to use new technology to lift a fingerprint from a piece of tape that was used to bind her hands and feet. Now, if the fingerprint also matched Tommy Swint, then the police's case against him becomes even that more strong. By this time, Tommy Swint, however, has left Ohio. The attention that he was getting from being the suspect in Tina Ivory's murder, along with his connection to Nikki McCowan and being named a person of interest in her case, was too much for him, so he moved to Alabama. And this is where the local Dayton, Ohio Police Department finds him working as a security guard. They bring Tommy in for an interview, and Tommy Swint is described as being cooperative at this point. Police say that they explain to Tommy why he was there and asked him for his fingerprints, which he willingly gives to the police. 
Police then, of course, run Tommy Swin's fingerprints against the ones found on the tape in the Tina Ivory case, and they were also a match. But when police confront Tommy Swin about the evidence they have against him, he denies that he had any involvement. He tells police that he's never even met Tina Ivory. But what police do next is really strange to me. Because with the DNA and fingerprints supporting the idea that Tommy Swint was allegedly involved in the murder of Tina Irie, they let him go home. Like, I'm not a cop, but like I've watched First 48, and when they have that much evidence against somebody, they usually keep them at the police station while they get the arrest warrant, right? So they don't usually send them home. So I don't really understand why he was allowed to leave and go home. Now, I'm not sure if it was because the case was 16 years old and they needed to look over the evidence, but apparently it had to be presented before a grand jury. But Tommy Swint being allowed to leave that day would ultimately eliminate the possibility that we would ever find out if he was really involved in the disappearance of Nikki McCown. Now, when police in Indiana learned that Tommy Swint was going to be arrested, they thought that this was going to be a major break for them in Nikki's case. The police long thought that Tommy Swint potentially knew more than he was saying, and that perhaps through interviews with him about Tina Ivory, he would reveal things that might help them figure out what happened to Nikki, if he was indeed involved. On February 3rd, 2010, a grand jury returned an indictment, and police are granted the arrest warrant for Tommy Swint. But when police officers arrive to place Tommy Swint in handcuffs, they hear a gunshot come from inside the home where Tommy Swint was. Tommy Swint had killed himself. He decided that he didn't want to defend himself in court. And with his suicide, he took with him all the answers Richmond police thought they may get about what happened to Nikki McCown. Nikki's family had been following what, happened, what was happening with the Tommy Swint and Tina Ivory case, and they, like the police, thought that he could potentially have answers for them about Nikki. But in the years following Tommy Swint's suicide, the police don't name any other suspects or people of interest in the case of Nikki McCown. Nikki's mom, Barbara, passed away in July 21st, 2020, the day before the 19th anniversary of Nikki's disappearance. She died not knowing what happened to Nikki. A broken heart probably contributed to her death. The timing was really significant. In a matter of hours, her life changed. Her daughter left her home, and she was never saw again. And Nikki's daughter, Peyton, is now a mom herself. And Nikki missed everything. Peyton had to grow up without a mom. And 20 years later, she's a mom herself. The tragedy and mystery of Nikki McCown's disappearance lives on. This July will be the 20th anniversary of her vanishing. Nikki would be 48 now. What happened to her? Where did she go after she parked her car in that apartment complex in Dayton, Ohio? What did Tommy Swint know? And why did he kill himself? Tommy may be dead, and there may not be any other suspects or people of interest, but there is someone out there that is still alive and well and knows more than they have been willing to say. This family is in pain, and time has brought them nothing. Every year that passes by is a cruel reminder that life is going on and Nikki is still not there. Nikki McCown's family will never be okay. They need answers. 20 years is too long. 
So I'm asking my listeners to do me a favor. After you listen to this episode, share it. Share Kiera's story too. It doesn't matter how many followers you have or where you're from. We can bring awareness to these missing person cases. And maybe somebody who knows something will see that there are people who have not forgotten about these women. And they will finally say something. Nikki McCown was 28 years old when she disappeared from Richmond, Indiana. She's an African-American female, five foot two inches tall, and at the time she was last seen, she weighed 115 pounds. If you have any information about her disappearance or her whereabouts, contact the Richmond, Indiana Police Department. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Episodes one, two, and three are also available, so make sure you listen. We'll be back next week with a brand new story, so make sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure you leave us a rating and let us know what you think. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.